Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pico del área, vaya golazo, vaya golazo de Giroud. El escorpión. This is Arscast Extra. Hello there, welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunner Blog. Good morning to you, or should I say, God Morgan? I think that's how they say it in Danish. Yeah, probably something like that. I must confess, I, I am in Denmark, in Copenhagen. I don't speak or understand a word of Danish, but it doesn't seem to be a problem. Everyone speaks English to me straight away. I must have something quintessentially English about me. Yeah, you, um, you do so have yeah. that look, yeah. Right, well, there you go. I mean, it's not a good thing, but um, it's useful <laughs> in this context. It certainly uh, is. Yeah. But yeah. Having have a you good... been here before? No, I haven't, but I was in Norway last year and it was amazing. I went to, uh, got to, uh, from the airport, was getting the train into Oslo uh, city centre and I was looking at the machine and the lady came up to me and spoke to me in Norwegian and I looked at her like, what? And then she just uh, mm. launched into absolutely perfect English and... Um, and help me out, brilliant. So no, it's. Uh, I believe Copenhagen's very nice, though. Very nice. It's very cool, actually. That's the word I would apply to it. It's quite sort of trendy. Maybe that's just I'm I'm hanging around in that part of it, but it feels effortlessly cool all the time. Uh, so I'm a little bit out of place. But yeah. Apart from that, it's uh, it's very nice indeed. A lot of sh- sort of sort of sheepish, traumatized-looking taxis around as well, of course. After yeah. the incident, oh, I was going to ask if you've come across. Uh, uh, the Bentner Cab, and of course, I guess you've been doing all the, um, the 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 tourist stuff. The statue of Nicholas Bentner, Nicholas Bentner Park, Nicholas Bentner Fun Fair, all the Nicholas Bentner stuff that you could possibly want. That's it. Yeah, I have done. Obviously, you've seen the plaque where he was born and what have you. And there are statues <laughs> of him on every street corner. I don't know if you were aware of that. I didn't know. Uh, that, no. <laughs> and uh, no, I haven't got a taxi actually yet. I've used the the rather excellent metro system. Uh, I don't want to run the risk, frankly, of contamination. Right. Well, fair enough. And you know, your your uh, your metro system joys are London's metro system. Uh, metro system's pain today. Of course, there's a tube st- uh, strike apparently in the UK. So. Uh, so I hear, so yeah. I hear. Uber, Uber making absolute killing over there. Oh yeah, they do that thing, don't they? The minute there's demand for a for a, a car, they put their prices right up. Like in the event of mm. nuclear war or some traumatic incident, Uber are just going to like prey on people's misery. Yeah, they are like like the corporate giants. They are, but mm. there you go. Um, but yeah, I tell you what, the tube here very trusting. There's no barriers or anything. They just assume that you've bought a ticket. Seems seems you know like you wouldn't get away with that in London. And there is a guy who comes around and checks every so often. But mm. we're so inclined. I could have stolen loads of journeys. I'm wow. regretting it in a way. It's very expensive here. Right. Well, yeah, that that's that's a factor. But I guess you know uh, showing some trust in the people, and you get it back in in terms of. What do you get it back in? I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know, guys. I anyway, don't know. Morale. Morale's morale high. So did you did you uh, catch the game over there? Did you find a bar, or were you streaming it on your laptop, or how, how did you do it? I used a VPN server to pretend I was in the UK and watched it from, via BT Sport. I was intended to go out to a bar, fell asleep, and woke up about 10 minutes in. Um, but it sounds like I sort of missed a good period of the game to miss. I mean, we started absolutely dreadfully, didn't we? Yeah, the first half was bad. Very, 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 very bad. I mean, we conceded a goal in the first 10 minutes. It was all a bit too easy. Uh, I think when you're making Aiden McGeady look like Lionel Messi, there's something very wrong with the way that you're playing. <laughs> um, you know, it was a nice bit of skill. I'd forgotten all about him. I'd forgotten all about Aiden McGeady. Mm. Uh, uh, and then there, there he was. There he cropped up. And yeah. we did, we made him look a considerably better player than he, than he ever has, really. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a little bit of good fortune, I think, to the, to the goal in the sense that it rebounded off a couple of Arsenal players, took a couple of uh, rebounds in the box mm. and just landed at the feet of the guy. But generally speaking, in that first half, we were absolutely terrible. I mean, there's no two ways about it. There's no dressing it up. There's no excusing it. There's no trying to rationalize it in any way. We were just just fucking terrible defensively really badly Mustafi was particularly <laughs> particularly bad I think uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles um, he struggled a little bit but because he's a young guy who's only playing like his second game at right back um, Gabriel found wanting for the for the first goal as well trying to play an offside that he probably shouldn't have played and uh, you know had Preston been in any way efficient in front of goal we would have had a, a much bigger mountain to climb than we did. In the end, it wasn't necessarily a mountain. It was sort of a, a, a small hill, I guess you would a say. A hillock, yes. Um, is, is that a really stupid hill? I think so, yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, I, it could have been so much worse. I mean, you think of the... There was a header, I think, that Mustafi mm. kind of deflected away. There was the one where they squared it across the box and managed to screw that up when mm. it was such a presentable chance. I mean, we easily could have been two or three nil down. I mean, I, I think it was possibly even worse than our first half performance at Bournemouth, uh, which is saying something. Yes, I think it was, you know, considering the level of the opposition as well. You know, we're, mm. we're taking into account that um, while while there's no easy games in, in the FA Cup, uh, you know, Preston are a championship side and we should have been we should have been more on it than we were, I think, you know, Um but look, we sort of rode our luck a little bit, and, and uh, I think the second half we we played far uh, far better than we did in the first half, which of course wasn't very difficult. But um, what we did as well in the in the second half was completely and utterly negate uh, Preston from an attacking point of view. They didn't have a shot at all in the second half. They, I think they, yeah. I think they used up most of their energy in that in that first forty five minutes. They did, they did, with the exception of their manager, who in the second 45 certainly found a new lease of life on the touchline. <laughs> he was uh, Simon Grayson raging at several mm. decisions incorrectly, it's worth pointing out. Yeah. Um, but him, I, yeah, him I, well, and the other with guy. one exception. The, the, yeah, yeah, what was yeah. his name? Pearson? I yeah. Think that was, yeah. He was little, an annoying little fucking guy, wasn't he? There was one where he came right into the back of Ramsey. Uh, it was very deliberate and uh, probably should have been a yellow card, I think, you know, given it was just such a blatant foul and he was going around the place uh, getting very crotchety and angry at, at stuff. So it was great to great to win, not just because we go through, but to make – I like it when someone's been an asshole and then they end up on the losing side. That really – it's one of the best things about football for me. 
It, it really is. But I mean, it's, it would have been a very different game, I suppose, had Aaron Ramsey not scored as quickly as he did. You know, I think that completely changed the p- complexion of the match mm. and probably sucked a lot of the energy out of Preston and, and altered their game plan because suddenly they found themselves having to score to win and didn't really know if they should be sitting back and defending or coming forward and risking getting caught. So that was a really, really important time to score and a really important goal. And I suppose that's exactly what you want to see Ramsey doing from those central midfield positions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he had a chance in the first half, I think. There was some really nice play uh, mm. with Giroud and he, he was trying to work a bit of space and actually I've watched this again I've watched the replays I know some people were saying oh, he, he took too much out of it I don't think there was an awful lot of space for him to get a shot in anyway other than perhaps a little toe poke something like that and I think what maybe we might have seen if, if Aaron Ramsey had been a little bit more confident uh, a bit more match fitness he might well have taken that chance in, in the first half a little more quickly than he did Um and I think the goal will do him an awful lot of good because he, he's needed it uh, in a big way. Uh, and it will hopefully instill him with some of the confidence that uh, that he needs to play as well uh, as we know he can. Um, I, I think there's no doubt his, his form has been particularly what's well, poor, not necessarily, but indifferent, I guess you would say, for, for quite a while. But uh, I do think that he... He becomes uh, a lightning rod for for criticism in the way that other players have in the past. That even when he hasn't played that badly, people seem to think that he's been absolutely dreadful. And I didn't think he was great in the first half, but then neither was any player in the first half for Arsenal. I thought he was uh, a lot better for us in the second half. And along with Xhaka, they seem to they seem to find themselves on the right wavelength after a difficult first forty five minutes. Yeah, I think they did. It was interesting to see them. Uh, together, you know, we've talked about it as a potential partnership, and I thought in the second half they were much better. But with Preston sitting so deep, you know, Ramsey had more license to to push on. And I'm not how accurate of you know most Premier League games, for example. Um, but it was a great finish and a really nice assist as well from Alex Awobi, who mm. I thought in, in a dreadful first half had probably been the one bright spot and did very, very well uh, to hold on to the ball in the penalty area and then lay it off for Ramsey for yeah. the first goal. I, I, yeah, I thought Awobi was quite good. I thought Lucas Perez was good as well. There was uh, not much mm. um, actually came off, but there was at least some... What's the word I'm looking for? Some decisiveness in, in the way that he was playing and he was trying to make things happen. Um, you know, I, I do think he suffers a little bit on the on the right-hand side. I can understand the, the reason for it. He obviously played Oxlade-Chamberlain on the left and, and Lucas on the right-hand side. I do worry that that makes us a little bit narrow sometimes, you know? Uh you think back to when we had Pires and when we had Freddie Jumberg. So Freddie, of course, is a right-footed player playing on the right and Pires is a right-footed player playing on the left. At least you have a little bit of balance there. But with Perez, you know that he's almost always going to come back inside. Um, the, the, the offset of that is, is the runs that he can make and the way that he can get into the box to, to try and make things happen. But um, overall, I thought in the first half, he was quite good and I thought Iwobi was quite good. Second half, and like you say, early goal, uh, a great strike as well from Ramsey, and then after that, we we pretty much bossed uh, that that second half. We did, yeah. I don't know if it's fair to say that we, we probably didn't create loads of clear cut opportunities. I mean, I can't think of many that had me sort of heads and hands. Oh, we should have scored that one, despite our 
domination. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a question of patience, really. I mean, Lucas Perez, you mentioned there, I thought was was quite busy throughout the whole game trying to make things happen. But it was really a, a brilliant moment of skill. Mm. ultimately created the goal for Olivia Giroud from him. Yeah, I mean, look, Giroud had a, had one ruled out for offside, didn't he? I think Ramsey mm. forced uh, a good save from the keeper. Mustafi forced a good save from the keeper. I think we ten oh, shots. Yeah, yeah, we ten shots in all um, in the second period, and, and, and Preston had none. But yeah, look, it, Ramsey involved in the in the in the winner as well. He put the ball up to Giroud. Giroud nodded it on. Perez, very smart uh, play from him, back heel and Giroud. I'm still not quite sure how it went in. He sort of like whacked it in off his heel or shin, or it went in. Mm. That's that's the main thing. And yet another late goal for Olivier Giroud. I mean, it's. Um, I think it's six of his nine goals this season have come in the last in the last twenty minutes or last fifteen minutes. And you think back to West Brom, eighty six minutes, Bournemouth ninety two minutes, Preston eighty nine minutes. You know, he is a guy that when you're looking for something late in a game, he's he's just capable of bringing it out there. Yeah, yeah, and you know uh, another important goal from Olivier Giroud, and uh, he he probably looked the man most likely to score. It. He had that one ruled out for offside, but and this finish was a uh, you know difficult to discern exactly how it found the net, but he was in the right place at the right time, and I, it's interesting to see why he keeps delivering these late goals. Do you think it's because as games go on, we adjust our style of play to be more suited to his strengths? You know, to to play with with a more traditional target man set up in the final stages of games mm, I think that I think that's part of it I think that's certainly part of it that as a game uh, gets towards its final stages you become a little more direct and that suits a player like Giroud who's a, who's a sort of archetypal uh, target man or, or, or someone you can aim balls at in the box anyway and he does create that chaos when he's when he's on it you know he's really dangerous and really difficult to play against I think the other thing as well is that uh, perhaps we're overlooking the freshness of Olivier Giroud, that he hasn't played an awful lot this uh, this season. And I think that in tandem with a team who's willing to keep going right until the death, and we've seen that a number of times uh, already this season, we've won games or we've drawn games late on, that there is, you know, an underlying level of fitness in this Arsenal team that allows them to keep going and it's a combination of that the character to keep going uh, the, the having just the physical ability to do it having a fresh Yiru I think when you've got other players in the team like I think Lucas Perez is pretty fresh Aaron Ramsey will be pretty fresh as well those fresh legs help in the final stages of games particularly when the opposition are a bit tired like Preston were yeah, I think that's a very good point, actually, the freshness. You know, it, this is a time of the season where fatigue really starts to bite and you sort of see certain players fading. I saw Arsene Wenger talking about uh, Alexis Sanchez being jaded. Mm. Uh, you do wonder about Mesut Ozil, you know, obviously he's been ill, but it seems like he's always got some kind of absentees, uh, you know, around the, this time of the year, take him out of the firing line a bit. Giroud's really someone who's come in and uh, stepped up to the plate and... Mm and delivered I mean it is that paradox thing I know you've written on your site uh, this week about how because he keeps delivering in the last 20 minutes of matches the temptation remains to use him almost exclusively in those last 20 minutes and, and not start him but when a player keeps scoring it's difficult to tell them they're dropped, isn't it? It's a, it's a, a tricky one for Arsene Wenger. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the point I was making is not to downplay Giroud's contribution at all. And I, I'm, uh, I'm a fan of Giroud, I have to say. Um, 
but I just mm. think that we play our best football or have played our best football this season with Alexis Sanchez up front. And I love the idea of starting games like that, but having a player like Giroud to come on, if we need him, who can very obviously make an impact in the final stages of games, who can come off the bench and score. And it's not always easy. It's not Some players just can't do it. Some players are, find it very difficult to get into the rhythm of a game coming on from the bench. But Giroud can come on and he can score and he can make an impact and he also allows us to change the way that we play. So if we're hammering down the door and it's not worked for 70 minutes with Alexis and uh, Walcott and Ozil and, and Iwobi switching and moving and, and trying to pull defences apart, if that's not working, then you've got a very obvious, a very definite plan B that can work. And I don't think um, it's unreasonable to to suggest that perhaps Giroud's best role in the context of this season is to be that guy who can come on and make a difference. Now, I'm not saying he's not going to start ever or that he should be on the bench for every single game, but I think, generally speaking, when you've got a system that works the way that it has with Alexis and that more mobile front three, front four... Um, I think we should play with that a bit more often. I know circumstances have been a bit different uh, over the last number of weeks in terms of players being available. Walcott's been injured. Ozil's been out, etc., etc. But, the, you know, this is evidence of why you've got a big squad and why you've got a player like Olivier Giroud, why you keep him, why people who last summer were saying get rid of him were, were very, very wrong. The, you know, that was not the solution. The solution was to find a way to get the best out of him, and I think this would be a way of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I completely agree with you. I think he's made a brilliant contribution this year. Uh, but I do think in that period where Alexis was playing up top through the middle, we were at our most dangerous. And it, and it is so useful to have that variation and somebody who can come off the bench and change a game in that manner. Mm. So I wonder if when... I think Theo Walcott's probably quite integral to it all. I think that, you know, he's been very, very effective on that right side this season. And when he comes back... Uh, and is available to Arsene Wenger I think mm. that's when we'll see Alexis return to the centre but it'll be interesting to see how Lucas Perez fits into the picture as well because whenever he's been called upon uh, he's been fantastic I saw a thing I think it was Opta Joe tweeting the you know the minutes per goals record of every forward in uh, top flight football across all competitions uh, in England and I think Olivier Giroud's number one and Lucas Perez is number two yeah. well I mean I, you know I think you can you can draw your own conclusions from that I mean some of it will have to do with how little football they played uh, this yeah. season but you know to have two guys like that who are so productive I mean I think Perez he's a really smart player somebody I can't remember um Last night, I think someone on Twitter was, was saying to me, isn't it interesting the way Arsene Wenger uh, sort of pronounces his name as Perez, which is quite quite funny. He's probably longing for uh, for the days of Bobby, as we all do. But, um, you know, he's six goals and five assists in 12 appearances. You know, that's, that's really, really productive. And you've got Giroud who's come in. He's got nine goals and three assists from, from just six starts. I mean, 18 appearances. He's been on the bench and come off the bench a little bit. But, you know, when you, when you have those players in a squad who can come in and give you something in games or that you could be reliably or reasonably confident in their ability to do that, you know, I think it does, it does have a big impact on, on how your season can go. So. You know, fingers crossed, uh, obviously things are uh, uh, a little bit difficult at the moment, but you'd have maybe a bit more confidence in this team's ability 
to win games than in previous seasons simply because of the number of players who are getting goals. Yeah, and another player who might do that uh, is Danny Welbeck. Yeah. He came off the bench to make his comeback. Great to see him return. I mean, you know, it's quite an odd situation, isn't it? He's not played, as far as I'm aware, he's not played any games with the under-23s. No. Youth side has been plunged straight in with the first team. So I think it'll be a very slow process for him. I don't think he'll be starting much anytime soon, particularly, but mm. uh, terrific to have him back in the squad. Yeah, it was good to see him get on, wasn't it? After so long out... Uh Arsene Wenger was talking about how, how difficult it was for him and how he, you know, he missed the European Championships, of course, and he was only back last February, came back last February and then was gone again in April. So it's been, I think, a fairly traumatic time for Danny Welbeck in terms of his own career. You know, two big injuries, two big knee injuries as well have got to leave you full of disappointment that you're not playing, but also self-doubt. And I think uh, he's going to be eased back in. I don't think there's going to be any temptation to start uh, playing him from from the start anytime soon. I think he needs to slowly build his fitness, build his physical confidence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, he is a he is a great option. He came on. He had a great shot on goal. The keeper made a good save, um, and he's a guy with power and pace and finishing ability. And somebody else in that front three who perhaps also uh, would allow us to play in a slightly different way from either Giroud or Perez or even Alexis. He's a bit more he's a bit more Alexis up front than Giroud. Yeah, I mean, Arsene Wenger was asked about that before the Preston match and said, sort of, uh, <clears throat> had Welbeck not got injured, maybe it would have been him playing through the middle of this season because mm. it looked that way a little bit towards the back end of the last campaign. Um, but it, as you say, just great to have him back. I thought he was going to do it again. He came back, of, of course, and scored against Leicester in February last year and that late effort was whipped towards goal, but a bit too central and a decent save. But yeah, great to have him back in the squad. And I wonder if maybe he will step down and play a little bit of football with the under-23s as well, alongside his senior team action, just to help him get his fitness back up. You know? Yeah, it would probably be a good idea, wouldn't it? You know, um, we have the yeah. depth to be able to let him do that too. That's that's the good thing, is that we're not, we're not reliant on him really. Um in the way that we might have been in, in previous seasons, you know, where a guy like him and you're going, well, let's get him back in as quickly as we possibly can. And, and perhaps that then has an impact on, on the rehab that they make and, and everything else. So, like, let him play. I think you're right. Let him play a couple of games. Do 45 minutes. Do an hour for the under-23s and just, just get back and get his match fitness. And I still think it's going to be you know, four to six weeks before we start seeing him feature regularly for for the first team. But, you know, what a what a fantastic option to have. Yeah, and I, I was looking back actually at last season and Arsene Wenger was quite upfront about the fact that he was taking a risk with Welbeck with how often he was playing him when he came back from injury last year. Uh, and you're correct, it, we don't have to do that now. And so often in the past we've had players come back from injury and they've almost needed to be a messiah. You know, they've needed to be someone who could save our season. And with the depth we have uh, up front right now, mm. that's not what we need from Welbeck and hopefully that will stand him in better stead. Yeah, so um, into the fourth round of the FA Cup, it is the uh, 21st third round victory for Arsene Wenger. He's never lost in the third round of the FA Cup. I was doing a little bit of uh, digging into the little bit of research on the... Um, 
on the third round record. And I was looking at uh, the year 2000. And, it, you know, in January, we lost to Leicester in the FA Cup. And I was thinking, have, has everybody overlooked this? What's what's going on here? Everybody seems to have overlooked the fact that we we lost to Leicester. And the, the third round of the FA Cup in the 99-2000 season was played in mid-December which is bizarre to think about. I don't remember that happening at all, but uh, apparently it was to do with wow. fixture congestion and replays and all those kind of things. But I was looking at the third round record and, you know, you think about some of the teams that we had uh, down the years and the players that we had. I'm looking at 1998, for example, uh, the the third round of the FA Cup. We drew nil-nil with Port Vale and then went to Port Vale and drew 1-1 um, and won the game 4-3 three, three on penalties. Uh, mm-hmm. we won, what year was it? In 2001, when we reached the final that year. Remember when uh, Stefan Onshaw was the goalkeeper for Liverpool and Michael Owen? I do, Michael Owen and all that, Fucking yeah. Cunt. Uh, we beat Carlisle 1-0 away from home. You know, 2003, 2-0 win over, over Oxford United. You know, the third round of the FA Cup is not always easy. And I think... Uh, one of the things that I guess I find a little bit difficult at the moment is as bad and all as we played in the first half, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to make any excuses for it, it was really terrible. I do wonder if more and more there's less understanding or less acceptance of anything that isn't 100% perfect, you know, because of the world that we live in and because everything is analysed to the to the nth degree, we tend to think that this is really dreadful, terrible, terrible things. And, you know, we've seen teams, much not much better, but better teams than this Arsenal team, you know, have, have disappointing days and disappointing results and disappointing performances. But I guess with the, with the, the blanket of success that surrounds those teams, we, we tend to forget those as well. Yeah, I think it's as fans, you know, our expectation is that we win. Mm. And if we win and play really well, we're satisfied. And anything less, <laughs> we're unhappy about that. Yeah, I, and, I, yeah uh, you know, uh, it's it does seem um, it does seem like we demand an awful lot at times. Mm. I don't think it's just I don't think it's just uh, Arsenal fans. I think it's the way that the that, that football has gone. In you know, we we've, we've spoken before maybe about the short termism of of opinion about how a guy is the you know cock of the walk one week and then useless the next. Um, it just I, I it seems to drive the the stories about football though these days. You know the the, the negative side of things or the lack of not understanding but just the arbitrary nature of sport itself. That you know football is unpredictable. As much as we would like it to be 100% predictable, Arsenal would go out and play brilliantly every game and win every game and there'd be nothing wrong with any of the players or nothing wrong with, uh, you know, the way that we play or how we perform. You know, it just doesn't work like that. Sometimes your victories are, are lucky victories, even with a brilliant team. Or sometimes you have to work hard or come back from behind. Um, you know, so there's, there's, I think there's obviously room for criticism when we don't play well, but I think it also has to be looked at in the, in the wider context of football and just generally sport. Yeah, and I think it is quite a, a remarkable record. 
certainly be proud of for Arsene Wenger. I mean, so many clubs have fallen victim to giant killings or even just, you know, difficult third round ties against other Premier League sides mm. over the past few years. And Arsenal have managed to do that. I mean, you know, I think some of the players probably were surprised by the intensity of uh, of the Preston game, particularly in that first half when I agree they put an awful lot of effort in. But uh, the fact that we withstood it and came back, Terrific, and also sparing ourselves a replay. Mm. Great news because you know what we—the last thing we need is another fixture. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, you know what? Uh, there's obviously another big thing that we need to talk about. Uh, that is the the Mesut Ozil uh, interview that he's given mm. the kicker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we're going to have uh, questions about that. So I think we'll probably do that in in part two and see if we can analyze that in in some depth in in part two. There's other questions uh, coming as well. I don't think we do it justice in the short space of time we have. Left in part one. So unless there's anything else on your mind specifically, we'll uh, we'll take a break and do part two, will we? Uh, yeah, only just to say how much I enjoyed John Terry being sent off. <laughs> I didn't see it. I didn't see it, but uh, that's always good. Was it comical? It's terrific because it's one of those, yeah, it's kind of a last man foul. You know, it's one of those where it's like he's been exposed, his lack of pace, his age. Uh, it's really, you know, he, he had his pants figuratively pulled down. So do check it out if you get the chance. Oh, I certainly will. You've sold it to me beautifully there. So uh, while <laughs> while we uh, get some questions and stuff for part two, I might go search the video for that. And we'll be back in a moment right after this. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two where we answer the questions that you send us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog. James, I have had a chance in the break there to watch the John Terry red card. Um, ha mm-hmm. ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's basically it is an enjoyable one. Mm. Shame about their result, of course, but uh, you know every cloud, I guess. Yes, we'll take our little uh, our little silver linings where we can get them, and that is in uh, in the uh, context of John Terry's misery. So, look, um, Mesut Ozil has given an interview to Kicker, 
uh, in which he's said that he he basically would like some clarity about the manager's situation um, when it comes to his own future. He says, I'm very, very happy at Arsenal. I've let the club know that I'd be ready to sign a new contract. The fans want that I stay, and now it's just down to the club. Um, and he said, he went on to say, the club knows that I'm here most of all because of Arsene Wenger. He's the one who signed me, and he is the one whose trust I have. Um, the club also know that I want to be clear what the manager is going to do in the future. We've had, we had a couple of questions, uh, one of which is on Facebook from Alan James. He says, following from my question two weeks ago in the, in the light of what Ozil said, will uh, Wenger's lack of decision on his future hurt the club and prevent players signing or re-signing? Uh, the players may, of course, want to play for him or not, so it could hurt us either way. And Tony Kent, who's on Twitter, at 2NILDAN, uh, wants to know, are Mesut Ozil's comments the clearest indication yet that Arsene Wenger hasn't actually made up his own mind about staying? Mm, that is an interesting one. I mean, one thing I found intriguing, because I saw the headlines first, mm. and the headlines generally have been, Ozil says, Wenger stays or I go, or something to that effect. Mm. But when you when you actually look at the quotes, that isn't really what he says. He just asks for clarity. Is mm. that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, and it may be the case that, you know, he, he considers Arsene Wenger's future very much linked to his own. If Arsene stays, he stays. But that's not what he's explicitly said. Um, you know, it's possible that they say to Ozil, well, Arsene's going, but Yogi Love's coming in and Ozil's happy with that. Do you know mm, what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. I, I don't know. There are plenty of other coaches who he might be prepared to work with. Um, I do think, to the, the second question, I do think this indicates that Arsene probably isn't 100% sure himself because one suspects the first thing he would do is give an indication to Meza Erznor and Alexis if he felt it would help them agree a new contract. I think that they would be the most likely to know Arsene Wenger's plans. So yeah. if Meza Erznor doesn't know, probably nobody knows. Yeah. I have a feeling Arsene Wenger knows what he wants to do. I'm not sure what it is. You know, there's a big part of me that goes, yes, I think he wants to stay because football is his life. I don't know what he would do if he wasn't a day-to-day football manager. You know, he's not a guy who's just going to sit down and, like, you know, do his garden. He just he just mm. can't operate that way. And I think Arsenal is also such a huge part of his life as well. So... There's a big part of me that thinks, yeah, he wants to stay. There's another part of me that isn't quite so sure. And maybe that the point you make there about, uh, you know, undoubtedly they they will have or he will have spoken to Mesut Ozil and, uh, and Alexis Sanchez about their futures. I do wonder at this point if most of that discussion is happening between the players' agents and the players, uh, you know, representatives and people like Ivan Gazidis and, and Dick Law. But it's very difficult to, to think that they haven't had some kind of conversation in that regard privately with the manager when they talk about their future at the club and they'll talk to, to him about, you know, their ambitions and what it is they want to achieve. Surely it's something they, they will have asked him so that, that it's still completely or appears to be, as far as Ozil is concerned, something that requires clarity, that, you know, I think it says perhaps that maybe Arsene Wenger isn't being forthcoming with whatever decision he might have made. Or or that yeah, maybe I he's think, unsure himself. 
Well, I, I think I'd probably rephrase and say I probably agree with you. He knows what he wants to do, but that doesn't necessarily tally with what he's going to do because, you know, circumstances may to an extent dictate what he has to do. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, so like he may want to stay, but the season may unfold in such a manner that it's very difficult for him to stay. Um, who knows, you know, I think with the next few months are really going to decide that. It is odd, isn't it? We're spending so much time fixating, understandably, on these players with 18 months to go on their deals. And yet Arsene Wenger's contract himself is so much closer to expiring and probably as important as those players are, so much more momentous and so much more significant in terms of what it will mean for the future of the club. Mm. Uh, and yet that's almost been a kind of secondary issue. Um, I guess because we think, well, we're not going to find out about it either way until until April or May. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about the idea of a player who, in Ozil's position, whatever he is, 27, 28 years of age now, waiting to sign the last, you would say, really a uh, big competitive deal of of his career because I think he's the kind of player who could, if he wanted, at thirty or thirty one years of age, go to China for a couple of years or somewhere and, and rake in in the cash. But in terms of like his prime years as a footballer, this is what he and Alexis Sanchez are about to commit themselves to. So whether it's with Arsenal or or whether it's elsewhere, is it unreasonable for a player to want clarity on the manager on the managerial situation at the club? That, that they're, they're uh, about to sign for or not sign for? Should they just, like, get on with it? Is, you know, is, is that the way it should be? Or is, you know, is that just missing the human element of it? I'm trying to think about the situation out of the clubs. I mean, the, the problem is if you signed for, I don't know, say Manchester United in the last three, four years, you might have been assured about who was the manager at the time, but by the next season, they were gone. The turnover's been so high. And the same would be true at Chelsea, say. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, a lot of clubs, even if they can tell you who the manager is and how long their contract is, there's no guarantee they're going to be there. I think Arsenal's probably a bit of a unique proposition in that respect because they're so associated with Arsene Wenger. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think because... Whoever comes after Arsene Wenger is going to have such a mammoth job. You know, it's like, would you sign for Sir Alex Ferguson if you knew it was his last season at Manchester United? Well, look at what he you know did what to I mean? Robin Van Persie. He signed him and didn't tell him. He didn't, you know, he didn't tell Van Persie. Van Persie was gutted when Ferguson left. And we can, you know, we yeah, can take absolutely. some pleasure in that. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. I think you're right. You know, if you're at a club like Barcelona or even Real Madrid, a club where there is a high turnover of managers, where, where maybe the manager isn't quite as embedded into the fabric of the club as Arsene Wenger is, you know, they're mm. coaches. But Wenger is like one of the last of the old school managers who manages the club. Um, and I know he's sort of delegated parts of it now, but, you know, he really does have such a huge influence over every aspect of, of the club that I think it does make it slightly different uh, because it's going to be whatever happens with Arsene Wenger, when he goes, the change is going to be pretty seismic, I think, because you, you we've spoken about it before. You've got to put in the structures uh, to help support a, a new coach or a new manager. It's going to be a, an entirely new way of operating unless you're going to bring in a guy who you think can do everything that Arsene Wenger does at this moment in time. And I don't know that that guy is out there. Or even if there's somebody with the potential to do that, I'm not sure that the modern coaches, the new modern coaches, are interested in doing what Arsene Wenger does. 
They don't want to be uh, as uh, involved in every single thing. So I think it's going to be a it's going to be a huge uh, thing as and when it happens. So I don't I don't really see that there's any I don't have any problem with also looking for some clarity in that regard. Yeah, I guess it uh, as we're sort of saying it doesn't really matter if you're at a club that has a record of sustained success in spite of managerial turnover then I guess the assurances aren't as important. But at a club in a position, a precarious position like Arsenal's, where they could be about to go off the edge of a cliff, frankly, we don't mm. know what that change will bring. It, it matters all the more. So I think he's I think he's entitled to look for it and to ask for it and to arguably to wait for it. I'm just not sure... I'm not sure he's going to get it, really. I mean, I think if Arsene Wenger's not telling... Ozil now, if he's not being completely frank with, you know, the the club hierarchy, which of course we're not privy to, but it does seem there's genuine doubt over his intentions, then I think, you know, Ozil's like the rest of us, he's in the dark and he's going to be waiting, waiting for a while, yeah. So it's, Mm. it's a really tricky one, it's a really tricky one. I mean, do you think he's being... Honest, Ozil, in that interview, do you think that it it is uh, such a big factor to him? Um... I would guess so. Or is it a convenient I, thing? Well, look, you know, I think that there's. you also have to look at this in the context of a player who is in negotiations with a club for a new contract. And everything that, that's put out into the public domain, I think, is is part of the process and part of the negotiation and the brinksmanship and, and everything else. But, you know, he doesn't strike me as... Um, a particularly duplicitous kind of guy. I think, I think he's just being honest about what what he thinks and obviously if he's got a strong connection to Arsene Wenger knowing whether or not Arsene Wenger is going to be his manager if he signs for another three or four years with Arsenal is is a factor for him whether people like it or not it is um so I think it's it's probably more just him being honest than than trying to trying to put any pressure on anything. I don't think it's him demanding that Arsene Wenger should stay or or anything like that or saying, um, as you said, not explicitly like if Wenger stays, I stay. I don't think it's I don't think it's quite that because, you know, managers come and go and players can um it might be a little unsettling for them, but it's not the end of the world and it's something that players have to deal with uh, time and time again uh, throughout their careers that they're gonna have to play under a different manager. Um so I think we'll just have to wait and see how this one is going. But you know, as much as we like to think it's all going to be or it's all okay and they're, they're professional, can you, can you imagine the, the boost that it would provide if Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez were both to, to sign new contracts with the club? But I don't think until there's clarity with what, what, what Arsene Wenger is doing, I don't, I don't think they're going to sign. That's the, that's really? the big he's, issue. He's, yeah, I think it just feels, it feels un, uncertain. You know, we were able to sign players. I mean, think about it. We were able to sign Mesut Ozil in 2013 when Wenger was in the last year of his contract. And you would imagine at that point, Wenger was able to say to to Ozil, well, look, my intention is to stay here. Whether or not he yeah. was able to do it. You know, it, he came very close to, to not being able to do it, of course. You think, uh, you know, the Wigan FA Cup semi-final. But at least the intention, or he was able to tell him what his intention was, all things going well and we won a trophy and, and then the, the, the new deal was announced just after that. Um, but here we are again where perhaps success is dependent or um, his, his future is dependent on success this season. 
but whether or not he's given them any in, uh, indication of what his intentions are, that's that's the thing. So I think it's it's quite it's quite complicated, and I you know I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, uh, other than like Wenger signing a new deal and the two players then rowing in behind him. What have you made of the sort of fallout of this online? You know, the discourse about, well, <laughs> I know you mentioned it in your blog this morning, but I have seen people saying, well, if, if that's what Ozil says, you know, we, then we might as well sell him because we don't want Arsenal to stay on and things like that. I mean, that seems to me to be uh, an odd an odd conclusion to draw from this particular set of events. Well, look, f- three or four weeks ago, if you'd asked anybody, should Arsenal um, keep Mesut Ozil, I think 95, 99% of people would say yes. And mm. uh, he's had a difficult week uh, that week when he played against Manchester City and when he played against Everton and, and he wasn't very good. Um, and I think it goes back to that sort of short-term view of things that we spoke about a little bit earlier, that he's being judged on that rather than what else he's done uh, this season, which has been, for the most part, really, really good, in my opinion. Um, I just think that when you've got a player as good as Mesut Ozil, that uh, he's a rare talent. Um, And maybe he's not going to be the all-action, biting, you know, tackling guy that people want. Um, and if that's what you want from Mesut Ozil, you're, you're, I think you're always going to be disappointed. But the idea that we would be somehow better off without him, I just, I just don't get it. You know, I don't get it. I mean, how do you replace? Yeah. How do you replace him? So it is. But I guess as well, it just shows you the strength of feeling for for the people that have um, lost faith in Arsene Wenger or his ability to uh, to win us the title again that uh, I don't think you can ignore that, that if people are willing to de- uh, get rid of a player like Ozil, if it helps get rid of Arsene Wenger, I don't think you can dismiss that sentiment either. I think it's something that has to be addressed or s- certainly something that the club have to be uh, aware of. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it shows how strong the feeling is, mm. definitely. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's going to be... <laughs> Uh, where, where do you stand today? I, I feel like I'm checking in with this on you on a kind of bi-weekly you know, basis, but like, how uh, how do you feel about Arsene Wenger's future right now? Do you feel like he's going to be here next season or not? I, ju- I just don't know. As I was trying to say to you earlier, I have a nagging doubt that maybe he won't be. Um, and my, my own feeling on it is that, look, if we can get somebody who will improve on what Arsene Wenger gives us, then I'm all for it. I'm, I'm genuinely mm. for that. But I don't necessarily see the point of change just for the sake of change or just for something different. I mean, would people be happier if a new manager came in and it was different but worse? I mean, I think a lot of it just stems from familiarity, which I understand. You know, I do understand that. But when it comes right down to it, you could make a change which isn't for the benefit of the football club. And I think any change of this magnitude has to be made uh, because you feel like it's going to make things better or, or improve you. Um, so it's just it's just really difficult to know what's going to happen. And obviously the second half of this season will dictate that to a, to a large extent. What I'm do you think? Fan, so f- <sighs> well, uh, I think... I probably still think he'll stay. I think I still think he'll stay. But it is difficult because I do think that some of that will be dictated by what happens on the pitch. Mm. Um, but I think his intention will be to stay. I'm a little bit surprised by this Mesut Ozil story, if I'm honest, because I would have thought that 
behind the scenes, at least, Arsene Wenger would have been indicating a willingness to stay. You know, there were stories in the papers, I don't know, a couple of months ago about a new contract for the manager and talks being held and things like that. I'm a little bit surprised that Ozil still is in the dark as he is. Mm. Um, because I think that, you know, if you listen to Gazidis, if you listen to Arsene, I think the that everybody's leaning towards him staying. So I'm still on that side of the fence, but there has to be room for doubt because, you know, we ultimately we don't know what's going to happen. And the fans, the fans will play a part in it. The fans will play a part in it. If the fans, you know, don't accept Arsene Wenger staying, then uh, that, that will surely hold some sway with, with people higher up the hierarchy. Mm. Well, look, it is, it's a really complicated situation, um, you know, from players and managers' point of view as well. So, uh, look, we'll see, we'll see how it pans out. Maybe this time next week we'll have more clarity or things will be even less uh, certain. So, look, will we move on and take a couple of other questions? Yeah, let's have a couple of other questions. Um, this one actually came in from a few people, but this one is from Samir Kazmi on Facebook. Uh, and they say, is it safe to say there may be some sort of problem with Wenger's training methods? Wilshire has now gone a whole six months at Bournemouth without injury. Welbeck's injuries record after joining Arsenal is ridiculous. There are quite a few examples of this. Sure, players get injured at every club, but at Arsenal, it's on another level. Well, look, here's the thing uh, that I would say about that is that in his six months at Bournemouth, Jack Wilshire hasn't had anybody break his leg in training, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and in his six months at Bournemouth, nobody has uh, tackled him the way that Paddy McNair tackled him uh, and, and sort of nearly took his ankle off. And I think that the vast majority of Jack Wilshire's injury problems uh, have little or nothing to do with training methods but have to do with impact and really uh, nasty tackles or, 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 or um, challenges that damage him, you know, that, that, mm. that, that cause him significant problems. Now, that you could ask a question about why it was that broken leg took so long to come back from. Because really, it was—I uh, think it was—it wasn't like his leg was snapped. It was a sort of a hairline fracture uh, of his uh, tibia. But you know, he should have been back a lot quicker than he was. So you could ask some questions about the recuperation time there. But you know, the, I think that he's just been—he's just had a run where he hasn't been absolutely fucking clattered by somebody, and he, you know, he deserves that. He absolutely deserves to to play football and not be fucking maimed by either a teammate on the training pitch or an opponent. So I think he's had a little bit of good fortune there. So, I mean, that, that would be my overriding thinking. And I think generally speaking, things are, uh, things are better than they were on the injury front. For me, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Arsenal, I would definitely agree. I mean, the other thing, the other factor that I don't think you can ignore is that he's not played any cup football at Bournemouth. You know, he's, if you look at the Arsenal players, they've played, how many is it, six Champions League group games? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, obviously, there's the, the league and FA Cup to consider. Walsh has not kicked a ball in any of that, so he's just had the Premier League to focus on. Mm. And we've seen in the performances of Liverpool and Chelsea this season what an advantage that can be to players in terms of their freshness and their fitness, uh, in terms of just focusing on the league. So I think that's also helping him. Um, you know, although he's playing every league game uh, compared to the, what happens at the big clubs, he's being used relatively sparingly. Mm. And uh, I intimated there that Liverpool and Chelsea weren't big clubs, and if you notice, yeah, I did. Yeah, that thanks. Yeah, no, I, I admired yeah. it silently. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably a factor, and also in the case of Wilshire, maybe he's just 
maybe he, I mean, touch wood, maybe he's just over the worst of it. I mean, you think of Gail Clichy, you think of Robin Van Persie, mm. players who had huge injury problems in the early years of their career, but unlike, say, Abu Dhabi, were able to overcome that and sustain some fitness once they hit their mid-twenties. Maybe Wilshire's entering that period now. You know, we all really hope so, whether or not he comes back to Arsenal, frankly. Yeah, I think that's a fair point as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he's, he's just had a bit of good fortune and hopefully he is over the worst of it and hopefully he can fulfil his potential uh, as an Arsenal player. Just on that... Um, I'm just trying to see if I can find the question here. There were a few people who asked it, so apologies. But basically, it was uh, in the wake of uh, Nathan Ake going back to Chelsea. Mm. Uh, should we have had a, a recall uh, clause on, on Jack Wilshire? Yeah, Dana Ronya on Twitter said, are we missing something on Jack Wilshire alone? No recall clause. Chelsea cleverer in loan deal. We're just stupid, question mark? Well, I don't think we're um, stupid. I think the, the the big difference is that we were loaning an established first-team player to, Chel- or to Bournemouth. Um, you know, Wilshire is an England international, uh, you know, playing his seventh or eighth season as, as a professional. And I think when you loan a player to another Premier League club, I don't think it's unreasonable for that loan to be a season-long loan without any recall clause. You know, otherwise, mm. what what is the point of the loan system? Um, the difference with Ake, of course, is he's, he was a young guy, a youth signing, who perhaps wasn't expected to be as instrumental as he is or as he has been for Bournemouth. You know, so I think that that's probably why they had that in there. But do you, do you think it would be in our interest to have that in every loan deal anyway? I mean, you know, because you never know what injuries are going to hit or when you might need a player. Like, surely it's just... But, but then I don't think it works. conservative common sense. Yeah, yeah it, it probably is. But then how can, how can... Why would any club take a player on loan? Let's, you know, Bournemouth t- said, look, we'll take Jack Wilshire on loan for the season because he's a really good player, in our opinion, and he could help us, you know, from August to May, uh, help us stay in the Premier League. But if mm. Arsenal at any time could recall that player, why would you commit to that loan deal in the first place? You just wouldn't do it. I agree. I mean, I think it can only be, I'm not sure, but I think it can only be actioned during a transfer window. Right, okay. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of like you would write in a break option at a certain point. Mm. I mean, Bournemouth, Bournemouth took Ake on that basis, and, and you're right, maybe it's because, you know, he wasn't as established, they weren't investing quite as much money in terms of covering his salary or what have you. Yeah. I just think, um, I've seen Arsene Wenger talk about this in the past, and he almost talks about loan deals in an ethical sense, you know. He, I think he's got his own issues with the loan market, and he feels like if a player goes to a, a club for a season, that should be that. You shouldn't be able to alter it, that should be the deal. Um he, he's never, to my knowledge, I don't know. He recalled Cockland, didn't he, from Charlton? But again, that was a short-term um, loan. That was like a one-month or two-month loan. Two loan. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not even convinced that if Arsene Wenger could Jack Wilshire, that he 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 necessarily would. Um, you know, he's a, a stubborn man, and he, you know, if he made a decision that he felt he could do without him this season, I could envisage him staying by it. It's the same reason he probably won't go out and invest in uh, a midfielder in the market this window he thinks he's got the players coming back he doesn't want to block their development why bring Wilshire back for three weeks when he could have another five months playing regularly at Bournemouth Mm. Um, but I think yeah I don't know If, if I said to you you can recall Wilshire tomorrow would you do it? yeah yeah I mean I would yeah, me for too. sure yeah 
Because, you know, we've only got yeah. two central midfield players, two fit central midfield players. And I think, you know, Wilshire's uh, a player of, of real potential. But I understand why the rules are... or understand why when you loan a player to another Premier League club that they want them, they want guarantees that they've got that player for, for the entire season. So it's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, you know, you either just it's basically don't... up to the loaning club. You know, it's like you have to negotiate that into the deal, don't you? And it probably, mm. probably, I imagine a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's a sticking point. They say, okay, we'll take this player, we'll pay his wages, mm. you know, we'll use him in our squad, but we don't want a recall clause in there. I'm sure people must insist on that because it would be bloody annoying to spend, as Bournemouth have done, you know, months rehabbing a player yeah. to lose him as soon as he's regularly fit mm. alright here's one from Magnus Holmberg at Magnus underscore Holmberg and you touched on it in the first part of the show when you talked about the players perhaps being a little bit surprised by the intensity mm. of Preston and he said why do they continue to get surprised by other teams commitment and desire why two whys in there <laughs> just to make the point two whys um, yeah well I don't know if I mean I don't want to answer a question with a question, but Nabid Ahmed on Facebook said, why have Arsenal started so poorly in the last few games? Is it because of fixture pile-up? And the reason I refer to that is because, you know, is it surprise or is it just not playing well from the outset? It's mm. kind of, it's difficult to discern, isn't it, which, which of those it is. I, I don't know why we're coming out of the blocks quite so poorly. I think... <sighs> I, I I don't know, actually. I was going to try and make something up then, but it's very difficult to know because, at least in the case of Preston, you know, you could understand players who are less familiar with English football, you know, new boys like Mustafi and Shaka, maybe they didn't anticipate it being quite as competitive as it as it was. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's plenty of other players who've got lots of experience there and who've competed in those kinds of games before. So it doesn't... It doesn't add up. I don't know. I don't know why they're starting poorly, but it's making, it's giving us hillocks to climb all over the place. <laughs> all right, here, I mean, let me put it to you like this. Um, afterwards, um, I think they were asked, were, were you surprised by Preston? Um, and Olivier Giroud said, surprised? Yeah, I don't know. They put a lot of intensity, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Aaron Ramsey said, uh, I've played in the championship and I know how difficult the teams are to play against. They took us by surprise with their level of commitment and effort. We didn't match that. So on the one hand, he's saying, I know what this league is all about. I know what teams in this league are all about. And then they took us by surprise. I mean, how can how does that work? You said you know what they're like. So I do wonder if perhaps this is just like bullshit media talk that they they say. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, which isn't necessarily the truth. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we were a bit surprised by how well, you know, but in reality, they can't be. You know, you can't be, you can't go away from home in the FA Cup and Arsene Wenger and Steve Bold and all these players and people in the coaching staff aren't going to allow a team to go away from home in the third round of the FA Cup without reminding them that, like, A, it's the FA Cup, B, we've been knocked out, this club has been knocked out by lower league teams in the past, C, it's never easy. The players know that it's never easy. Uh, you know, so I don't necessarily think that they were surprised. I just don't think they dealt with it. That That's it, more for me, more than actually uh, them being, oh, gosh, look at these guys, they're running around a lot. Oh, look, they're quite good at, you know, I don't buy that. I don't buy that they're surprised yeah. by the intensity or the commitment of a lower league team who've got nothing to lose, who are the underdogs in a cup competition. I just don't think that's credible. 
So I think basically they're talking out of their holes in a post-match interview, yeah, I mean, just saying <laughs> whatever the fuck comes into their head. I mean, yeah, exactly. When you illustrated that with Aaron Ramsey saying one thing then the other, I was like, it's almost as if some footballers aren't the most eloquent people or don't choose their words particularly carefully. Yeah. I, I think that I'd be more inclined to say I was surprised than that I was shit too. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, you know, you, you, it's easier to go, oh, I was really surprised by the intensity then. Well, I couldn't kick the ball in the direction that I wanted for the first 20 minutes yeah. because I was playing shit. No one says that. So I think... Um, I, I, I think that's kind of nonsense. The whole surprise thing. Why they why they're starting poorly though, like why they started so poor, poorly against Bournemouth and so poorly uh, against Preston. Mm. That is more difficult to answer. I think a lot of credit does have to go to the opposition. I think N- inevitably, as football fans, we we look at our own team uh, and I think sometimes you've got to take your hat off to an opposition who, who do something well I think yeah. particularly in the case of Bournemouth like I thought they did a very good job on us for most of that game yeah. um, as they did at the Emirates Stadium to be fair they looked dangerous then too so we were warned Is there, but, is there a correlation uh, James between starting poorly and finishing strongly is that is, I mean, are we, like, saving our energy well, you a have to bit? do one if you do the other. Well, of course, of course, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you'd rather score early, but... I don't know. I don't know. It's, it, yeah, well, as in, like, we grow into games, maybe, in a way, and our, and our fitness, you know, is in some way attuned to see us dominate mm. the latter periods of games. I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, patience, maybe. I, it's... Um, I'd love to believe it was deliberate, but I'm not sure. I I'm not sure I fully do. I kind of feel like we're digging ourselves out of holes yeah. more than you know laying down some long term strategy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I can't. Uh, can you explain it? Why we're starting so poorly? No, I, mean, no. I can't. I'm I, sorry to say. I think it's just fluctuations in in form and the way that the way that it happens. I think it, when it happens a couple of times, it then becomes something you're hyper aware of, maybe. Um, and it's difficult to get out of that little habit or that rhythm of, of starting games. I mean, I think earlier in the season we were starting games quite well. You know, there was a, a lot more intensity from the off. So I think it's just fluctuations in form and the way that the team plays. But, you know, I, I would agree we've got to find a solution for it because uh, at some point the hillocks are going to become, you know, more than hillocks. They're going to become small mountains. And uh, we won't yeah. be able to get over them in the second half of games. So it is something that needs to be addressed. It is indeed. Uh, let's speaking of things that need to be addressed. Let's have a look at this question from Viv the Quick, who's at Victorious eighty one on Twitter, mm. and he says, "If Bellerin ain't fit for Swansea, which he's got a chance of being, it sounds like, it sounds like it's just a knock. But if he ain't, who should play right back? Gabriel, uh, Jenko, or Ainsley Maitland Niles? Um, it's an area where there's some doubt, isn't it? Really." Yeah, we don't seem to have reliable backup in the same way that we do at left-back, that if Monreal's not there, then, you know, Kieran Gibbs can come in and do a fairly adequate job. We don't have that there. I mean, it's difficult to make a case for Maitland-Niles because he's a midfielder for the most part and he's been asked to do a job at right-back. I do wonder if maybe there's a little bit of whether they're readjusting him perhaps setting him up mm. to be the backup for Hector Bellerin in terms of uh, the way that he can play because he's he's strong, he's quick. Um, so he has some of the same qualities that, uh, that Bellerin has. Um, and maybe that's the way that you can, you can have 
the backup for him is to grow it from within rather than go out and buy a player. I mean, how do you buy a right back? If you're a right back, do you join Arsenal with Hector Bellerin there? I mean, you don't, do because you're never going to play or you're going to play a, a, a fairly insignificant role. Um, you're not going to be a first-team regular. So I do think that perhaps uh, developing somebody like Maitland-Niles in that position is the, is is a way of of dealing with that. Whether he's ready or not at this moment in time, it's 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 hard to say. I thought he was okay in the in the second half. Struggled a little bit in the first half. Um, you know, I wonder if he would be found wanting a great deal more against Premier League opposition as well. So it's it's very difficult to know. Um, he could play Gabriel there. I'm, I'm not that convinced by Gabriel at right back, even though he's done okay. Um, maybe that might be the best option, though, given, uh, you know, we're away from home. He could play Mustafi in there. I have a question about him now in a minute, actually. So, I mean, what, what would you do? Uh, I think I'd go Gabriel. I think I'd go Gabriel. Um, not entirely comfortably, but Swansea have got a few players with a decent aerial threat as well. Llorente's good in the air, and I wonder if having another... Another tall player in that back four might be of assistance. I, I mean, hopefully Bellerin's fit. It doesn't sound like a serious problem, does yeah, it? Yeah, but you know, you know. It's Arsenal. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Arsenal. let's 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 deal with Mustafi then, see how he fits into the picture. What's your question? Uh, uh, the question is, hang on, oh, I had it there and now it's gone, so just... Uh, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Uh, Stephen Killick at Steve Kills says, Has Mustafi always been shite, or has he suddenly developed shiteness? Uh, because he, he was, yeah. he's, he's struggled a little bit since he's come back. He has been really bad, hasn't he? Like, shockingly so. I, mm. I, it's alarming, really. I mean, I don't know. Is it... Is it is it rustiness? I mean, that's the that's the most obvious conclusion. Or you know, was he much better alongside Lauren Koscielny? You know, was the fact that Koscielny wasn't there at the weekend a factor? Um, I don't think you become a bad player overnight. So I'm hoping it's just I don't know. It's almost like it, the mistakes he made against Preston were incremental it was like once he misplaced one pass his confidence took a hit and then suddenly mm. every pass was going awry but um, I, 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 it's sort of so bad and so such a sharp decline that I'm almost not that worried you know what I mean I'm sort of thinking it's kind of anomalous and like a period of a week of really poor form but I'm expecting it to turn around still yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> Are you, are, you, are you less confident or what's your opinion? I, I think your point about Koscielny is a really good one. I think it shows the importance of Lauren Koscielny because uh, both Gabriel and Mustafi look a lot better when they're playing alongside Lauren Koscielny. That's the first thing I'd yeah. say. The second thing I would say is that in my own very humble opinion, some of the impact of Mustafi was overblown. I think that... But he was in Stan, Stan Collymore's team of the year, Andrew. <laughs> Did you not see? Uh, no, I'm blocked by Stan Collymore on Twitter. I have no idea uh, why. Well, not go. that I'm following him anyway. But I think that he is... You know, he looked a decent player since his arrival from Valencia. But I 
I was always a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that he was suddenly this defensive colossus that has come in and made us so much better. We spoke a number of times on the podcast about how uh, even during the, the the winning run that he was on when he came, I, I don't know that he's lost a game yet, has he, as an Arsenal player? You know, um, I, think so. I, I think that had much more to do with the collective than it did with him as an individual making a, a huge impact defensively, you know? Um, so I, I don't think he's anywhere near as bad as he has been in the last couple of games, but I also don't think he was quite as good as people were saying. So that's my that's my little caveat on that one. I'm not 100% sure he's as good as people think he is, um, which isn't to say he's a bad player. He's still only 24. He's going to develop, um, you know, and I don't want to be sound like I'm writing the guy off or anything, but I just, you know, f- from my point of view, I, I I still need to be convinced a bit further that, that he, you know, he's, uh, he's as good as people say. Is he better than Gabriel? Um, oh, it's a big pause. It is a big pause. I think, yes, certainly with the ball, he's better than, than Gabriel. I do worry that he shares some of the same traits that he's a little bit rash at times with his decision-making. Yeah. You know, that he slides in, he goes to ground a bit too easily, he leaves himself perhaps exposed a, a little bit. But you know, when you've got somebody like Koscielny who can keep keep things together, he's kind of the central defensive glue, then I think it gets the best out of both of those guys. But together, mm-hmm. they looked they looked like strangers, which I suppose they were. It was the first time they played together. Was it? Yeah, I, th- I, I think, think it might so. have been the first time they played together. So, so certainly as central defensive explain. partners, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I, think you're, I think you're right, actually. I think it's quite astute what you're saying I don't think he's quite as good as we might have uh, some of the narrative around the season might have suggested but I think he's still a darn sight better than he was at Preston so hopefully he's back to something like what we were seeing more in the autumn Mm. uh, at Swansea next weekend All right, have you got one more? I have actually. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this really. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to try it anyway. Um, Mark Holmes on Facebook says any thoughts or insight on Gedeon Zelalem? He hasn't gone on loan this year, hasn't been involved in the cup squads, and his contract is apparently up in the summer. Do we still want him, or if not, why don't we sell him in January so we make a few quid out of him? Thanks. Good question. Um, I don't know why he hasn't gone on loan this season. I do mm. want... That was, that was a strange one, you know, for a guy who's got all that potential. He looked like a really good player. But I do, you know, sometimes you get these guys that come through at youth level and they they look fantastic, um, but don't quite develop as quickly as you need or as you would like. I mean, I don't think he's anywhere close to being a first-team footballer for Arsenal. Uh, but maybe they wanted to keep him in-house and, and work on various things with him. Um, he did a reasonably successful loan, didn't he, at, at Rangers last season? So I, I don't really have any insight into that, though, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know about his contract either, so um, we, we'll yeah, just have I mean, to see. He, he'll be 20 uh, during the window, right. 20 towards the end of this month. and. I, you know, he was very well hyped when he came over, you know, extremely well regarded. And I think at international level, certainly Jürgen Klinsmann um, is a big admirer of him for America. Mm. But he, 
Uh, he's not been on the bench in the Premier League, I don't think, since February 2014. I mean, he's barely been involved and, and not really figured in the in the Cups, as the question says. So you have to wonder about his long-term future at the club. Um, it, you know, he was involved in pre-season, wasn't he, a couple mm. of times. A, a few, but I just think... Mate, there was always talk that he hadn't developed developed physically as they hoped, you know, that maybe he wasn't quite as strong as they thought. And certainly I think that was problematic for him in Scotland. You know, he started out in the Rangers first team, but eventually lost his his way slightly there. Uh, I think he was being out-muscled a bit. I mean, I know that's a very physical, physical league up there, but... Mm. Um, yeah, maybe just physically he hasn't quite caught up with his technical ability, and at the moment I'd be a little bit surprised to see him to see him given a new deal at Arsenal. Yeah, all right. Just one final one for me. It's not really a question that came in from anybody, but th- this uh, story last week, uh, I'm sure you saw it, uh, linking us with a left back who'd been on trial at the club, Cohen mm. Bramall, who was playing for Hednesford Town. Is that how you say it, Hednesford? I think Hedden's, so, yeah. or something. Anyway, Hensenfrindsen Town. Um, something like that. Something. So he's on trial at Arsenal. He's 20 years of age. He was working in a Bentley factory. He's sponsored by a stamp collecting website or something like that. It's, it's all very strange. Um, he's impressed enough, apparently, to be given a deal at the club, which is yet to be announced, but he's uh, being interviewed on Sky Sports, talking about, uh, you know, this fantastic opportunity he's got. What do you make of it? I find the whole thing really odd. It's very strange. Brian McDermott is apparently the guy who brought him to Arsenal's attention. I've done a bit of digging around this and, you know, earlier this season he was linked with trials at a couple of, like, League Two clubs or League One, you know, like, really low down the football pyramid. Mm. He goes on trial at Arsenal, trains with the first team. Arsene Wenger apparently pulls him aside and says he likes the way he plays. And before you know it, he's earning a, a permanent deal at Arsenal that I think certainly is going to run for at least 18 months. I I mean, extraordinary. It's, it's a great story, certainly. Yeah. Um, but weird as fuck, though, gun- right? <laughs> so weird. So weird. I mean, you know, it's making Park too young feel for like the most considered purchase ever. But maybe... <laughs> He's a diamond in the rough. I mean, you know, it does happen that players make the leap from non-league competitive football. And Arsene Wenger does love a, a punt on a player, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think apparently there's a... I read George Bird on Ars blog saying that there's a dearth of left-backs at youth level and they need someone who can come in and play that role for the under-23s. It's just mad that... You know, the the other clubs in for Bramall were so far down the leagues and yet he's ended up with a Champions League club. I mean, the guy must be absolutely pinching himself. Yeah. I mean, um, look, it would be great, wouldn't it? A fantastic story. And I think Arsene Wenger spoke last year maybe about how the lower leagues are often overlooked, that there is real talent there if people are prepared to go and look for it and to find it. And Brian McDermott, former manager of Reading, former Arsenal player, of course, uh, who has been doing some scouting for us uh, in recent times, you know, if, if he's recommended him, if he's come in, if Arsene Wenger thinks after a trial with the first team that he's got what it takes, perhaps, to to make the step up, then then brilliant. But, like, I just found that the whole side of him talking on Sky Sports News and, and everything else without it having been officially confirmed by Arsenal in any way, I, that that was weird to me. But look, it'd be great uh, if he could make it, if he can make the step up and become a, a first-team player. That would be amazing. But, you know, you've got to have doubts. You've got to have doubts. You've got to wonder. I mean, I don't know his full career history, but why 
why he's 20, why it's taken him so long to sort of end up with a, a you know, full time professional club. Um, who knows? But <laughs> well, let's keep an eye on it because, you know, it'll certainly be an interesting one. I don't know if we'll ever see him. It'll probably be a question in a year's time about whatever happened to Cohen Bramall. You know, he'll be forgetting <laughs> and settling him in this particular scenario. But uh, yeah, a great story nonetheless. And obviously, absolutely terrific for him. And uh, we'll see, won't we? We'll see. Yeah. I, I, it would be a huge, it's a huge ask for him to make the step up in terms of the demands that will be placed on him now. Um, and if he can manage that and, you know, thrive in training, then he'll, he'll have achieved a hell of a lot just in that alone. Mm. So let's see how he gets on. All right. Well, look, good luck to him. Um, mm. may, it all, may it all go well for him. Uh, we'll leave you, James, to enjoy Copenhagen for another day or two. Or Yeah, I might even pop over to Malmo in Sweden today and get, just get the train over the bridge. So having visited the, you know, the home of Nicholas Bentner, visit the home of Zlatan Ibrahimovic. You know, so I'm sure that'll be equally low-key. Okay, well, what I would advise you is don't get killed exactly halfway between... Uh, the two, no, the two that, that cities. creates all sorts of logistical problems, it's I understand. Just a fucking nightmare in terms of whose case yeah. is in. Oh, my God. Anyway, you know, we, we'll, uh, we'll, watch the, we'll watch the drama on BBC Two late at night uh, if that does happen right. to you. And we will, of course, uh, mourn you deeply. Uh, so uh, enjoy the rest of your stay. And uh, we'll catch you with an Arscast on Friday. And we'll be back next week with another Arscast Extra. Until then. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.